I found that if I got rid of a lot of things, donated or you know, sold off a, a lot of my possessions, then there was like less clutter in my mind because there was like less clutter in my life, physical clutter. And that went for some of the, you know, medals or accolades that I'd won too. And the the only medals I ever kept were the, the two World Cup gold medals that I'd won. Welcome to Unspoken Bravery. I'm your host, Erin Milzinski, a multiple time Olympian. Skiing started as my first love and quickly became my greatest teacher. This podcast is meant to take a deep dive behind the capes of our everyday superheroes and find out what's under the brave spirits, the fearless feats, and the nerves of steel. It's normal to feel fear. Hardships lurk around every corner. And yet these roadblocks can be met with a challenger's mindset and turned into wonderful gifts. It's time to celebrate imperfections, to build bravery from setbacks, and to take our goals to the next level. So let's dive right in. Hello and welcome to Unspoken Bravery. Today, our guest is from a sport that I am less familiar with. I'll give you a hint. Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Get on up. It's bobsled time. That's right. Today, we are talking to Chris Spring, a bobsled pilot for two-man and four-man sleds. As you will hear, Chris was born in Australia. He competed for Australia at his first Olympic Games in Vancouver. Later that year, he moved to Canada, began competing for Canada, and later represented Canada at three more Olympic Games. Throughout his career, he showed incredible tenacity and grit. Chris stood on the top step of the World Cup podium two times, finished up the 2018 season ranked third overall in the standings, and placed fifth in the two-man race at the Olympics in Sochi, not to mention multiple podiums throughout his career. While he was competing, Chris realized that his mind grew still and calmer as he sold and gave away his possessions. Becoming a minimalist, Chris began living, training, and of course adventuring out of a van. In Chris, I found a kindred spirit with similar deep thought patterns, but one that owns far less than I do. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Welcome to Unspoken Bravery, Christopher Spring. Hey, thanks for having me. Sounds official, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Especially when you use my full name too, which I know when I put in my Zoom name, it's Christopher Spring. Um, but it's just something, anything that's like a bit more official than, hey, my name's Chris. Um, I always put my full name and then people call me that. It's an ode to your mom. So I did like a bit of background research and it was like, I know your mom prefers it. So it's an ode to your mom because I had to practice it. I'm like, because I know you as Chris Spring. So I was like, oh, Christopher, we're going to start with that. But because I was thinking that we've seen each other around for years. We've been on the same Olympic team three times. But I feel like we kind of saw each other in passing. And then we really bonded on the bus home from the closing ceremonies this year. Yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. And I'm exact. I'm glad that you brought it up as well, because um, you've always been someone, like you said, on the team that I'm like, oh, yeah, I know Aaron, but. I don't actually know Aaron, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, got on the bus because I used the bathroom, which was just a hole in the ground, I think, with a porta potty around it. And I came on the bus late, which thankfully I made a bus, but I was like, oh no, where do I sit? You know, no one wants to share the seat beside them. And so everyone had their bags there and like passive aggressive and like high school. I'm like, oh, and then you're like, oh, you can sit here and move the water for me. And then we kind of talked about surfing and bus life. And then shortly after Lenny and I bought our school bus. Mm -hmm. And then you were nice enough to jump on a call with us and give us some background tips. Know it all. (laughs) Yeah. Either tips or overwhelm you more about bus life. Yeah, no, it was tips. It was amazing. Okay. The way I want to start is obviously most of the listeners are skiers, just the way it is right now. But can you explain bobsled, how fast you go, the dangers, the role of the brakeman and the pilot, and then like what role you play? Mm, Okay. So bobsled, it's been around since 
well, the early 1900s, was in the very first Olympics. It's been in every Olympic since. Uh, actually, except for the one in Squaw Valley in California, they never built a track for it and they never hosted it anywhere else. So no, no bobsleigh at those Olympics. No way. I didn't know this. I know, right? Crazy. We uh, There's three disciplines now. There's monobob, uh, which is what the women, it's a women's only discipline. It's just a single person in a sled, one pilot. Um, and then they have the role of being the brakeman as well. There's two men and two women, uh, obviously with two people, and four-man bob, which actually got changed to four-person bobsleigh uh, about eight years ago. Um, so it's a gender-neutral sport. You can be either male or female in the sled now. Wow. I didn't know that either. Mm-hmm. I'm learning so much. So I'm a pilot. And I, I, I've always been a pilot, too. I, I started off in the front seat. And most people will start as a brakeman or a brake woman. And uh, and then after how many years of getting beat up back there, they're like, hey, maybe I'll try <laughs> try driving this thing. Uh, but for me, I started up front. And so it's my role uh, to make sure that we yeah, steer that sled or that I steer that sled as, as best as possible down the track and understand the track and its personality and, and try and drive the best lines possible down the track. I do still push the sled. A lot of people are like, oh, you, you, I guess you just sit in and, and people push you. And I'm like, no, that would be great, especially because I'm getting older. But we all push the sled and I actually just am the one that hops in first, which is awesome because I am getting older and uh, that means I don't have to run as far. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that, actually, too. Yeah. Uh, so I get in first and then the guys hop in behind me. And, um, you know, I was actually speaking to someone yesterday and they asked, well, what do the people behind you actually do? And I'm like, well, it's really important that we that we start fast, because if we're if we're behind quite a lot at the beginning, then we we just have no chance of making up that time to the bottom. So their job is super important to get us going as quickly as possible with my help as well. But then like them getting into the sled and sitting as like perfectly as possible and creating like a good aerodynamic shape on the way down the track is such an underrated skill. People just think, oh yeah, they just jump in and sit down. And from the outside looking in, that's what it looks like. But to to really sit really nice, it's very difficult to do that. And at those speeds as well. Um, and so you know, like if you're driving down the highway and you stick your hand out the window, you can you can feel that that drag. And I'm sure you guys talk about this a lot in skiing, you know, having that like perfect tuck position and not having things flapping about mm-hmm. um, to get the best um, the best speed down the you know, it's called a course. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to mess up today, too, with words. I apologize. Yeah. I feel bad. I'm like, oh, these skiers might be listening to this. And they'll be like, oh, man, this guy has no idea about skiing. No, you do. Um, <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, I got pizza and french fries down. <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, so so sitting in, like, a great aero position is is really important. And then the other thing that's as equally as important as getting to the bottom as fast as possible is also stopping, which again, I think is underrated. And I've had so many times where I've had some brake malfunctions or my brakeman's passed out in the back from G forces. And, you know, we just keep, we just keep going. And this is terrifying. I know, right. It's terrifying because I like to go fast but I love to stop and stop where we're meant to stop. Otherwise we just, you know, you can fly out of the end of the track and, you know, into snow banks and all this kind of stuff. And so you that's really know if he's passed out until you're like, okay, stop, stop. I know. Like, like I'm yelling. Break, break, break. <laughs> and eventually I'm like, okay, he can hear me. So, you know, I'm going to just stop yelling because something's wrong back there. Either the brakes have, failed in some way or maybe he's not there i don't know what happened but um this rarely happens especially at at the level i'm at now but um when you're learning you usually have people that are also learning in the back and um, sometimes they're taking their first runs in a sled ever and you just have to trust that they're gonna pull those brakes 
Uh, and I can kind of reach back and, you know, give it a little, a little tug myself, but it, <laughs> you really have to reef on those things. It's like a, you know, 300 pound deadlift for, and a hold for, you know, 15 seconds sometimes. And so you really got to like hold on to those things to get that sled to stop. And how fast are you going from like, Oh, what speed to zero? Yeah. Reach back is different. Um, but the fastest track in the world here is in Whistler and it's not uncommon to be doing 150 kilometers an hour or more. The speed record is held by a German guy. I think it's 157 kilometers and change. And I've gone 156, um, that same day, uh, when the track was, uh, in really good shape. I don't know if that's probably similar speeds to skiing. But it's crazy because some people haven't even driven cars that fast before. Mm -hmm. When I was young and I was, I was thinking if I ever get pulled over, I've actually never had a speeding ticket, but I was, I was like, if I ever get pulled over, I'm going to say I wasn't speeding. I was qualifying. <laughs> I'm just practicing for my sport. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if that's going to fly, but you know, let me know how that goes and <laughs> if it works. Hopefully I make their day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what makes a good pilot? Like what makes you really good at being a pilot or what sets a pilot apart? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that, you know, like driving a sled is not, or piloting a sled, there's no real like athletic ability, like raw athletic talent to it. Um, not like running a hundred meters, like you have to be fast twitchy guy you have to be born with these genes of, of being able to run fast whereas piloting a sled is a skill like flying a plane or uh learning to draw something like that right and the more you the more you practice it the better you're gonna get and people do pick it up quicker than others they just have more of a understanding of the feeling of pressure and and i'm sure you you speak about this when you're training or racing and, and, you know, feeling the pressure either in your feet or in your boots or in your, in your body when you're making that turn. And it's the same with us. And it, it took me a couple of years to, to really get that feel in my hand and in my body when the pressure is, I guess, when, when the, when the sled is under pressure and trying to manipulate the sled to do what you want with the pressure that you have. And the concept is very foreign when you first learn to drive. You're like, what do you mean pressure in my hand or pressure in my butt that you would feel? And it only, it takes years to, to get that feeling, right? And so I would say that what makes a good pilot would be um, not panicking because things go wrong, can go wrong pretty quickly. and and uh, I would say that a perfect run is not attainable mm -hmm. or, you know, a near perfect run, very attainable, but the absolute perfect, perfect run, I don't believe is attainable because there's always going to be some small, you know, era in the sled where you're like an inch this way or two inches that way. And basically all we're doing is it's like, uh, you know, when you set your GPS to go to a destination and you take a wrong turn and it says that it's recalculating or, you know, finding, you know, it's finding the best route again. That's basically what we're doing on the way down the track is we're always just a tiny little bit off, hopefully only a tiny bit off about perfect line. And so we're just recalculating what we're going to do in the next corner to get back on that perfect line again. Oh, I love that. And when you're saying that I'm, I was a big feeling skier too. Like if mm. I can feel the feeling in my body, I can recreate it again and again. And so as you were talking about feeling it in your hands or your glutes or something, I was thinking the same thing. Like you can feel it just in your toes or in your, you know, now I have goosebumps because that's why I loved skiing. You know, that's why I loved racing. And it sounds like I've heard some of your interviews and it sounds like you're kind of the same type of pilot, just like really feeling it instead of thinking like I have to be here perfectly. It's like, okay, if I can feel the G forces or the line or, you know, and I love that analogy of kind of like recalculating because it's the same thing in skiing. You're kind of always just recalculating a little bit because at these top speeds, I don't go as fast as you because I'm a slalom skier, but at these high speeds or fast, um, you know, slalom is really quick tempo. You have to always be recalculating. So it's fascinating to hear you say that. Yeah, it's a it's the perfect way to I think the perfect way to for people to understand. You know, it's 
it's so difficult to always be on that exact same line from you know one run to the next to the next to the next even if you're doing the same course or for us the same track and so you're always just tweaking things ever so often and and thinking ahead like the amount of thoughts that rush through your brain when you're going down a course or where i'm heading down the track it's i i guess it's identical because we're we're thinking oh i'm a little too early here or a little too late there i need to you know press a little bit more there to make sure that my exit is here but then maybe you you think that you did enough but you didn't do enough so then on the as you exit that curve or that that turn for you you know you're on this line and then you need to recalculate again and again and you're always like looking forward to the next uh you know that next corner or that next exit and just constantly evaluating where you are and how you want to position that sled yeah exactly and that's what i say like you always try to be in the moment you know today in modern times we're like stay in the moment but in sports it moves so f- i think in any sport you almost have to be ahead of the moment or else you're behind you know if you're not thinking ahead if you're thinking about what went wrong like if you're thinking about the mistake you made then you're going to make another mistake because you're thinking in the past. Oh yeah. You have to like leave that behind you. You know what I mean? Like just uh, like you, you make the mistake and it's like, Oh, something happened, whatever. And then just forget about it, which is so hard to do. Right. It's so hard to just like, Oh, leaving so hard on ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, okay, I can deal with that once I get to the bottom of the track and then, you know, that comes off the eyes and just think to myself, okay, yeah, I did make that mistake up there. But in the moment, you can't be dwelling about it because you have so much more to concentrate ahead of you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's something that I think kids, they're so hard on themselves. And I'm like, you need to stop thinking about the mistake and how quickly can you come back from this mistake? Like think ahead instead of what went wrong. Um, because I think that in sport, we are so hard on ourselves, but it's like, as soon as you start dwelling in that moment, you've, then you've lost, you haven't lost until you start thinking in the past. Oh yeah. I like that. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Have you done the Myers-Briggs test? You know, the personality test, like introvert, uh-huh. extrovert. Uh, if I have, I don't remember doing it. Do you think that you're, how would you explain your personality? And is it different as an athlete as it is in day-to-day life? I don't think I'm that much different as an athlete as it is in day-to-day life. Uh, I think that, I think that I'm more stressed in day-to-day life than I am as an athlete. Really? As an athlete? Yeah. (laughs) Maybe because, and we kind of spoke a little bit about this earlier this week, as an athlete, like it's not, it's not uncommon for me to live that role. And so it's very familiar and I understand like what's expected of me and, and things like that. But the day-to-day life or, you know, like if I'm like working or something like this, I, I don't work very often. And so, <laughs> you know, I don't really understand the expectations or, or the, the personality or, or the, the person I need to be in that environment. And so I think it stresses me out a little bit more. That's so true. And I've been feeling that way because I'm transitioning and we we talked about this. And right now I feel a little bit like I'm searching, but I think that I'm so used to this schedule. You know, every Monday for the past 14 years, with a couple exceptions, I've done strength. You know, every Monday afternoon I've done <laughs> cardio. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, Monday now I have Zoom meetings or I have this and that. And I feel like I'm messing up more because I'm not sure what's expected but then sometimes i'll hear feedback and it's like hey that was great and i thought i've just messed everything up and i think you're totally right it's like i'm not quite sure the expectation versus input of energy versus priority versus scheduling and you know having this schedule put in front of me and so i feel i don't know maybe that's why athletes feel a little bit lost as they transition or as they enter the workforce cuz you're doing both and I found that the more wishy-washy, it's a bad word for it, but the more wishy-washy the job or, you know, where there's not like clear cut roles, the more I feel uncomfortable in those situations because I don't really know what I'm doing. Right. And so, you know, if it was just a, if it was a, a job where, you know, I show up and, you know, my boss tells me what I'm doing that day and and then I'm there with a, with a crew of people and I go do it. And I don't really have to think about it too much, yeah. then then pretty easy. But 
you know, if there's lots of planning involved or, or if there isn't so much, uh, I guess, a, a defined role around what I'm doing, then I'm like, <laughs> am I, you know, am I doing this properly? Like being an athlete was so much more chill. Yeah. But then at the same point, being an athlete is like consistently challenges, consistently adversity, consistently like knowing what your role is, but then like, you know, snow comes and your role has completely shifted from this to this. And so it's kind of interesting because what we say we feel more uncomfortable in is actually what we've have thrived in for the past, whatever, 14 years or so. Yeah, I do agree with you with that. And, uh, and, and, and being like, we, we've become very good at, uh, at dealing with stresses as well. Uh, And a lot of them and, and just becomes the norm. Uh, last week, so I'm taking this season off from competition because uh, I'm rehabbing from knee surgery, and uh, which I can relate to a lot of skiers about because <laughs> you guys are always getting knee surgery. Yeah, uh, which is a, it, it's not a very common thing for bobsledders to be getting knee surgery. So there was a, a a North America's Cup race here in Whistler or a Noram as you guys would call them, and um, they. You know, a year after the Olympics, there's not as many competitors and, and people are struggling for funding or whatever. And they needed one more sled to make it an official race so that people would get points. And uh, they're like, well, Chris, you're not racing, but like, do you think you could race? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I don't want to. But they're like, we really need you. You know, we've got these people from, from Europe that have come to race and, you know, they're not going to get any points. I'm like... Okay, sure, I'll race. And it was um, a four-man competition. And just that day, even though I wasn't, I was in the race and I knew we would we would finish last because, you know, I'm just, I'm just there not putting in my, you know, I'm not going to push hard or anything. I want to yeah. make sure my name stays intact. The stress I felt of going into a race again and racing four-man in Whistler because this track is difficult and driving four-man here is, is very difficult. Even though I've, you know, done it a, a bunch of times and without any problems i immediately just started feeling like this this stress and anxiety and i was like wow this is what i would be feeling every week yeah is is these stresses and i've just been kind of like being a vacation bobsledder these last few weeks showing up and just sliding a little bit helping out coaching a bit and now i've got a race and i'm like oh man like this feeling is, uh, you know, I was like getting overwhelmed and I'm like, whoa, it's all good. Just, just calm down. I know it's so innate. And I was thinking about that too, because our, not our, I shouldn't say our, the Alpine circuit for slalom just started today. And so I woke up and saw all the results and everything, but I was thinking about all that pressure I would feel in the last years, like first race of the season. Do you measure up? Are you fast enough? It's a hill that's difficult for me. It's really flat. And, um, I was thinking about that just this morning, like how much pressure and stress we were under every day, but even training, it's like, if you're not the fastest in training, then people are starting to talk. And if you, you know, Mm -hmm. miss a race, then you get kicked out of a certain seating point, then it makes it more difficult. And so it's like always this constant pressure that we're under, but I actually got my cortisol, like my stress levels tested since I retired and like very high. So I think it's just like constant, but I think the training, you know, we also train to max a lot of the time in the gym Yeah, and we're traveling and we're jet lag and we're, um, I think it just makes it, you realize that you just get used to those things. You know, you get used to the pressure and the stress and the jet lag and packing up and leaving the night after a race to jump on a plane, to go to the next place that like as an athlete, we get used to those things, but then you step away and you're like, wow, that was a lot what I was doing. Maybe I have to heal a little bit now, but that was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that we underestimate the, what we have put our bodies through for so many years and our minds, you know? Yeah, exactly. Can I, it's okay if you don't want to talk about this and, but if you're comfortable, because the whole premise of unspoken bravery is taking these top athletes and their courage and their bravery and their results, but like getting under that like taking a deep dive beyond that like why are they brave or how did they get there or what have they gone through and i some episodes i kind of focus in on one specific thing or one or two things but can we spend a little bit of time on your crash from 2012 oh yeah no problem okay because i know it was can you explain a little bit what happened sure uh so i'm heading down the track 
in my four-man sled and we're in east germany pretty difficult track difficult for me at the time as well because i hadn't had much training on that track before and it and it's renowned as one of the the three difficult tracks in the world there's there's three that people always talk about and this is one of them and um i make an error on one of the corners at the bottom of the track and uh, my sled crashes and you know people crash all the time and it's just part of the sport right just like it is in in alpine as well you know we, and and 99 percent of the time you get up and you walk away mm-hmm. but in this instance um while the sled was on its side we came into the next corner and we hit the roof of the track and uh the roof is there to keep sleds from flying out of the track basically and hitting a roof isn't unusual there are some lines that we take that are very close to the roof and you know often we hit them a little bit and it's not a big deal um but in this instance when i when i hit the roof we we hit it at quite an angle um going straight up towards the roof as mm-hmm. the sled was on its side and uh we went through the the structure of the roof and got stuck the sled kind of got stuck in behind the roof there's like a the actual I guess the steel composition of the of the roof, what it's made of, and it basically just ripped the sled open, kind of like a can opener. It it ripped the front axle out of the sled and and threw out the sled, and uh, we came to a complete stop in, you know, maybe five or ten meters from 120 kilometers an hour to zero, and um, yeah, like the uh, the sled was was completely uh, torn apart. And I had a piece, so I broke my nose in the impact, but the thing that was the most um, damaging was the roof was made of wood on the outside and a piece of wood impaled me through my butt and up into my back. Uh, so like through my right glute and into my back. And um, I didn't even know it at the time. Obviously, adrenaline's like a pretty awesome thing and um, didn't even realize that that I was that badly injured and you know, I was more worried about my teammates as well because they were, they were also injured, just not to the extent that, that I was. Oh, my goodness. And so you were in four, man. And so how do you feel kind of having that responsibility as a pilot and then these brakemen behind you and you've this is just what's happened? Oh, yeah, it's devastating, you know, because it's especially like the reason why we crashed is because I messed up my steer in a previous corner right so it's like full responsibility on myself i guess the a a lot of the ways that i explain it to myself is that people crash all the time from from driver error but it's never meant to end up like this right so Mm -hmm. it was it it, kind of was a freaky accident but uh you know the hard part is is getting back in a sled and and having that responsibility of of these people's lives because you literally have these people's lives in your hands um behind you and um you know making sure that not only you're racing for medals but trying to keep them safe as well and yeah it was definitely for for many years after had a difficult time battling that and wanting to be successful but also wanting to be safe as well, because you're always pushing that, pushing that edge of, of, you know, driving a, a, a more safe or cautious line, cautious line down the track, or, you know, pushing the limit of your sled. And, you know, the reason why we're competing is to win medals a lot of the time is this is the main focus, right? And um, so I'm going to want to push the limits all the time, but there are times where, you know, I would choose not to, because, you know, I had this, this fear of, uh, of injuring people again, because it was a very real crash. I was conscious the whole time. And, you know, the sounds are are still very real in my mind. I can, I can recall them quite easily and, and what I saw things like that. And, um, I think one of the big things that helped me overcome it all was the fact that my teammates still wanted to compete. They still wanted to compete with me, other teammates that were on, I guess on other Canadian sleds during that time, they also wanted to compete with me. They also believed in my ability. Um, and so, you know, I, I would look at, at these athletes that are like, wow, these guys really believe that 
that I can win a medal, you know, whether it's at World Cup, World Champs or at the Games. And they're willing to get in behind me and put their 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 lives, their safety and trust in me. So if they're willing to do that, then why can't I trust myself if they're if they're trusting me? Yeah. And isn't that kind of an underlying theme of life? Like how are we so hard on ourselves and so mean to ourselves sometimes when we would never say the same things to our best friends? You know, like if you were them, you'd probably get in a sled with you again too, but you're probably sitting there blaming yourself, having all this guilt and these flashbacks and, you know, not the sounds of just yourself as, as skiers, we only have ourselves to take care of. And I can't even imagine having that feeling. Like I'm sitting here with shivers as you're saying that. And I'm like, I don't know if I could have done it. Yeah. And I think that like you hit the nail on the head saying that it, it is, it is an underlying theme in life as well, because we, we are so hard on ourselves. And, and the fact that, that there are people out there that even the same guys that were in my sled that that came back after, you know, rehabilitating these injuries, they wanted to slide with me again. And like, they were in that crash and they knew what happened. And, you know, they knew that I messed up too, right? It wasn't like it was just a, you know, my steering broke or anything like this. It was me that, that made the mistake, but they're, they fully trust me and fully believe not only that, that I'll get them to the bottom safe, but I'm going to take these lines that are hopefully going to win us medals again. Yeah, that's so true. And then what were the extent of their injuries and, you know, time in the hospital and everything? The longest anyone stayed in the hospital was myself at eight days. Uh, so not that long, actually, for what happened. And so I, I broke my nose, was impaled, then had to get that removed. One of the guys uh, broke his leg and uh, cracked a rib and also had like a like a butt injury, but definitely not an impalement. One of the guys walked away, which was great. He uh, was pretty badly bruised up, didn't slide for about three or four weeks. Um, also like under concussion protocol as well. Oh, yeah. Because of that. Uh, we all experienced um, pretty bad concussion and one athlete uh, never returned to the sport. Uh, just because he was advised by the doctors not to because of the impact on his on his brain was was pretty severe right so that was one of the the things that was really hard for me and it, it's still hard to talk about because you know he was you know a, a good athlete up and coming and you know I feel like he, his career was cut short because of because of this crash right and and I do feel responsible for that and um you know, we still keep in touch too. And he lives out in Ontario. He's always fishing and, um, you know, really enjoys his life now. And he went back to school, finished his, um, education as well. And so, you know, he's, um, I talk about this or I have spoken about this a lot, this assumed guilt that I have for a lot of things. I just, yeah, I assume this guilt a lot for, for things in life. And I'm trying to, uh, I guess, dispel that by asking people directly so that I can be, I guess, rid of this guilt that I, that may not even be there. It might not even be a real guilt to, to have. And so in this situation, you know, I, sp I spoke to Bill about it and, you know, he, he doesn't hold any ill feelings towards me or he doesn't blame me for, for his career being cut short at all and uh you know tells me about how awesome his life is after sport and so it kind of it kind of uh relieves me of this guilt that i that i hold on to for myself which really isn't a real guilt it's just me kind of making this guilt up assuming that that's the way he feels yeah that's i mean that's i'm sitting here and like trying not to tear up but I find that you're always so honest and you share. And I think that that's why it's easy for people to feel really connected to you. And I think that that's what makes you inspiring, but also kind of easy to feel like relatable, I guess. Like I've drawn a lot from that in the past as well. And I mean, I don't think, I don't think I believe that every single thing happens for a reason, but I think sometimes we can't see the good and what happens that are bad things. There's this old I don't know, story or proverb or something that this, this old man, he lives on a farm. Have you heard it? This old man who owns horses? Uh, no, tell, tell it to me. 
I don't know exactly how it goes, so I'll send it to you after, but it's basically that this old man, I think he loses his horse and people are like, oh, that's so terrible. And he's like, we'll see. And then this old man- Oh, I have heard of this one. It's great. Yeah, it's amazing. And then this old man, I mean, has a great harvest or something. They're like, that's amazing. And the man's like, we'll see. Mm -hmm. And then the horse breaks his son's leg and people are like, that's terrible. And the old man's like, yeah, we'll see. And then the officers come to- take all of the young men to war, but the son has this limp and a broken leg and people are like, oh, that's amazing. He didn't have to go to war because of the horse, because of whatever. And the the old man's like, we'll see. And sometimes I feel like we should have, I mean, of course it's so hard and his career was cut short, but also it's kind of like, we'll see. And then his life became this beautiful fishing and education and maybe a place where he too can find some freedom and comfort in what happened as well. Yeah, I, I like that. That's a it's a good way of looking at it because we 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 are very quick to assume that when something happens that it's either a positive thing or a negative thing, but we don't know what the outcome really is because it it can lead us down or it can open up so many different doors for us that we never really had imagined because we're so focused on just one thing. And for a lot of athletes, that's you know making it to an Olympic team and and being successful at a, at an Olympic Games as well. And when that's derailed in some way and we think that you know life is over you know like it's you know it's not going to happen or or that that if it doesn't happen that that was a bad thing but maybe in fact it was the best thing to have happened to you yeah exactly and I think you did a better job of balancing like probably why we didn't know each other that well is because I went to the gym and I ate my lunch and I went home you know, and I rested and I napped and then I went out and did cardio. Like I really just did my sport and that was my huge focus. And I really didn't have so much outside of sport. Like you're also an airplane pilot, you know, that's, I mean, it's incredible how much I've seen you do outside of the sport to have this like really well-balanced life so that if sport is no longer there for you, you have this amazing life that you can say, Hey, that's, you know, that was a part of my life, but it wasn't my life. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that. That's like big props for me. So thank you. Because, you know, we're our hardest critics, right? And, you know, I think about, you, you know, if I'm doing enough outside of sport or if I'm, if I'm, if I'm filling up that cup of mine of enjoying my life outside of sport, with the things that I love to do, whether that's hiking or biking or flying a plane, you know, now like ski touring or something like that. Right. And so I, I always feel the guilt too, when I'm doing it, like, Oh, maybe I should be resting or, uh, you know, focusing more on sport or whatever it is. Right. And I think that, that it's a, it's an internal battle that a lot of athletes have with themselves. Um, and I see some athletes that are, that can do it very successfully. And I see athletes that really struggle with it too. Yeah. And I think I, I go all in. So I struggle with it because I'm like, Hey, mountain biking, I'm like, must be the best, (laughs) must be great. So I think I got stuck instead of just kind of doing things and enjoying them. I go all in on everything, but I think that it, if you do have those other things, it creates this balance so that you can focus on your sport more or take away some of the pressure from the sport, which is what I've seen school do for a lot of athletes as well. I think so. Yeah. And I I think that it, well, not, I think so. I know so. And it's only until I'm really stepping into that realm of, of taking on other things outside of sport, like actually doing them like biking that I can see that it, doesn't take away from my sport that it actually helps you know mentally and physically to be a better well-rounded athlete so that I can put my best performance forward and I I don't know if um I'm sure that you know a lot of the skiers in the community you know Britt Phelan and you know I I've you know trained alongside Britt at the gym here in Whistler for years and I see her biking all the time in the summer and my first thoughts back in the day it was like this girl's not serious how can she be how can she be biking and and then trying to trying to have a ski career at the same time i'm like she's not serious and i see how successful she has been because of that though. yes you know, 
and and that you can actually do it. You can actually, you know, live a, a very fulfilled and well-rounded life as an athlete and have things on the side. I see uh, some summer athletes that I know that are doing their MBA at the same time as competing on the world stage and being successful at the same time. And I'm like, what, how is this possible? How can they do it without being all in? Like you said, Yeah. Um, because I thought that that was the only way that you had to be all in. And it wasn't until the last, you know, three, four years that I started to kind of dabble in other things outside of sport and realize that like, Hey, that's not actually taking away from my, from my sport and my, uh, ability to be successful it's actually adding to it and it took wow i was like i wasted so many years of just uh you Me know too. like you said go to the gym then eat go back home nap come back you know get the work done and then you know no no extracurriculars outside of that yeah because you have this guilt like this guilty feeling and then yeah. so did three or four years ago is that when van life started like how did van yeah. life start it started just after the 2018 Olympics. I bought the van the summer before the 2018 games and uh, did the, did a reno on it. And then as soon as the Olympics were over, boom, I hit the road. I was out of there. Yeah. That's amazing. And how, okay. So I heard that you only kept two medals. You don't keep many of your awards and I'm kind of, so I kind of live out of a storage unit. So most of my awards are like in my storage unit ready to be unpacked, but why why is this simplistic life important to you? I think it's most important for my mind uh, more than anything else. And my mind is is so, so busy all the time. Um, and I think that's why I love driving a bobsled because you have to be in that moment during that one minute. It's this one minute of peace that I have where my brain is just thinking about one thing which is driving the sled. And as soon as that's over, then it's off just thinking about all these things that are happening in the world or in my life. And, you know, there's so many thoughts coming into my mind. And I found that if I got rid of a lot of things, donated or, you know, sold off a lot of my possessions, then there was like less clutter in my mind because there was like less clutter in my life, physical clutter. Yeah. And that went for some of the, you know, medals or accolades that I'd won too. And the the only medals I ever kept were the, the two World Cup gold medals that I'd won. And I don't actually know where they are right now. They're in a box somewhere. I hear that. Um, yeah, exactly. Like most people with their medals, they just, they're tucked away somewhere. And I kept them because it was, well, first it was the first time I ever won a a world cup gold medal and you know it was like a validation maybe of, of the like yeah i am one of the best pilots in the world that on this day i was the best my team and i was we were the best yes. and it's like there's not many times many times i can say that i guess it's yeah it was kind of a validation of my career as well to be like hey you know you, you did you did achieve a lot of things and and i know i fell short in, in a lot of the goals that i had set for myself but I, I also achieved a lot of the goals that I set for myself as well. Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel like I fell short in a lot of ways, but then in a lot of ways, I shouldn't have that feeling. I know that. I mean, I hate the word should, but I, I know that in a lot of ways, I those medals and those accolades don't define my athletic career either, you know, because yeah. I think both of us can say like, we have been the best in our sport because of these gold medals, but we can also say like, we've stayed there for a lot of years. You know, you're a four-time Olympian. I'm a four-time Olympian. And the first thing people ask is, did you win a medal at the Olympics? The oh answer is no, God, I, I fell short, <laughs> but you know, oh. for 14 years, were you, or whatever, 12 years, were you at the very top of your sport and giving yourself an opportunity weekend after weekend? Yeah. We were always there and always very competitive. People ask, like you said, oh, did you win an Olympic medal? And and I think about it more and more when I speak to corporate groups or or to, to schools or whatever it is. Winning an Olympic medal is it's so difficult because there's this only this one chance every four years, and like so many things can happen 
within that time, and especially like recently with COVID and, you know, hearing about people's stories about them missing the Olympics or, or being in isolation for, you know, seven days up until their competition and then just coming out and trying to compete. It's like, whoa, this isn't, uh, the chances of winning an Olympic medal is so slim and, and everything has to line up, not just your, not just physically or mentally or, or with your team and everything, but there's got to, there's a, there's a, an element of luck involved as well to make sure that everything lines up perfectly for you to even have that chance of putting your best performance first to win yeah. that Olympic medal. I think that's why we see some strange results sometimes at the Olympics. You're like, oh, this person hasn't done anything all year. And now they're on the podium or, and then they don't do something again, but they had this like standout experience where everything lined up and they put themselves in a position for it to line up, but it did line up and it was this amazing, but that's what I say, you know, three people, like I do one event, three people podium every four years and I haven't been one of them. But it's like kind of crazy to think that that's the question. Oh, did you get a medal? Which is understandable. Like that's what we're all going for. But I like that thought that the medals don't define us, but they are a reminder of those best days. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And and I don't need to. I, I said this in the in the documentary that I did. That I don't need to have an Olympic medal to know that. I was one of the best pilots in the sport or that I continue to be one of the best pilots in the sport. I guess the, like, I still would like one. Yeah. Would it be nice? Like For we, sure. Like we all do. We, we, otherwise, why are we here? Right. Um, but almost to share it too. You know, Exactly. Like, it's more to share it with people. You know, yeah. like I, I did a, a talk down in Vancouver three weeks ago for the um, RBC Olympians program. And I'm telling them this story and, as I'm telling it, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, they're probably expecting me to pull out a medal at the end of this story because it's like this adversity story and, and there's going to be a happy ending kind of thing. And as I got to the end, I'm like, you're probably expecting me to like reach into my pocket and whip out this medal. And as much as I would love to do that, to share it with these people, to like mm. see that, that look on their face, like... Not every story has this fairy tale ending, but you know what I can share with you are these lessons that I've that I've learned throughout that. But exactly. not everyone, not everyone can win the medal, but it's what we can take away from that. It's such a cliche word, but from the journey that we had trying to achieve that medal. Yeah. And sometimes I'm like, is that just a cop out for the people that haven't won Olympic medal to say, oh, the journey is what's important, you know? But I sit there and for years, I was like, the only way that my story is going to make an impact or be inspiring is if I win a medal, because you have to go through adversity and then the hero always comes out on top, right? Like you struggle and then you pull an Olympic medal out of your pocket and you talk to this, these kids or corporation or whatever. And then they're like, oh, if they could come out of that dark time and stand on the top of the podium, so can I. But then I realized that like most stories don't end that way. You know, we go through adversity, but through it, we don't pull out an Olympic medal. We learn a lesson that stays with us for the rest of our lives that sets us up for success or compassion or to be a better human or something, which is like maybe not equally inspiring, but it is realistic. I think like most yeah. people through adversity don't go out there and become a hero. They just get through it. They like suffer through it sometimes and they stand in the start again, or they slide again off after like crashing through a ceiling right yeah yeah it's a good reminder i guess that like yeah that metal it's although it is it is lovely to have would be lovely to have mm -hmm. um there are so many stories that can come out of not winning a medal as well yeah exactly and i think that, that there's there's uh it, it was skiing is similar in in the fact to bobsleigh that that they're kind of like time trials, the races, right? Um, you're not racing like one-on-one -on -one or, or, or in a group mm -hmm, of four yeah. or eight or whatever, right? It's just you and the mountain by yourself. And you're ripping down as far as to the bottom as fast as you can. Same with bobsleigh. And no one can impact that uh, run of yours except yourself. And you can't impact other people's run. It's just them and the mountain. And uh, when the last two Olympic Games, 
us as a team, as a, as a global team of Team Canada, the bobsled team, we've re- we realized that we as individuals can't compete against the Germans because they're just the powerhouse of our sport. And the only way that we can be successful is if we all work together, all the pilots work together to develop like the perfect run down the track. And we made this kind of pledge to each other that even though we're going to work together and we're going to share our secrets with each other, that means that we're, we're all going to get better and have a chance of a medal, but we're also giving other people our, our competitors, because I'm directly competing against other Canadian sleds. I'm giving them a chance to beat me as well. And we have to be okay with that. And turns out that in the last two Olympics, like we have won Olympic medals, Team Canada has in bobsleigh. It just hasn't been me and my team. Yeah. And, and you know, Justin has been a, a rival of mine in the sport for so many years and we've had we've had beef before and when we've had a lot of success together and we knew that that in order to for in order for at least one of us to be on the podium like we're gonna have to work together and i've found a lot of joy that one of us was able to win an olympic medal with with my help yeah, and Justin told me personally that like he would not have been able to be to to have those Olympic medals without my help, and you know I find a lot of joy out of that. There's there's a lot of solace I guess that I can take from knowing that I've been able to impact someone's career in a positive way. Yeah, I love that, and that's what I kept saying. You know, it's not us versus us; it's us versus the rest of the world, like not actually, but I have a lot of friends from other teams, but why are we pitted against each other? And why are we doing this? Let's use and share and build. And so we're doing it together. And then that's like the beautiful thing that, you know, when Mitch stood on the podium, I did feel like I had a little part in that. And I hope she felt the same way for me. Obviously it's a little different with being individual. Like we don't have four or crew or anything, but I love that thought that it's like, you know, that's our superpower as Canadians. That's what we're always known for, mm-hmm. for having this good culture and working together. But if we can't foster that, then we lose a superpower and then we're not going to be, you know, if we're pitted against each other, we're never going to be able to compete against Austria and Germany and, you know, Norway. We have to work together to ha- give ourselves a shot. And then we have it shot. We have it without all of, you know, the funding or the snow or the races in yeah. our home country. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm glad you brought that up. And I I love interruptions. Can I take a page out of your book? And can we end with a little like simplicity? I was like, how can I be more simple on this podcast? Which really oh, I should. Okay, yeah. Can I just say a word and you just say kind of like word association, but whatever comes to mind. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I love it. And we're going to start with the cheesy one first because we have to always go here, but bravery. <laughs> <laughs> First thing that I thought of was a bear. Oh, maybe a new helmet yeah. design. Oh yeah, I don't know. Bears can be brave. I feel well. Any animal is brave, but yeah, I'm going with that. You know, bear. when I was young, I wrote "Be the bear" on my knuckles every race. So I like that. Maybe it was double meaning, but okay. Um, fear, angst. Okay, simplicity. Van life. Happiness. Sunset. And the last one, parachute. Oh. (laughs) Where did you read this from? (laughs) I do my research. You were on a podcast with Kelly Vanderbeek. Wow. And I heard that that was a a special word for you. Yeah, I think of my friend Tim, one of my old teammates. Wow, I'm like tearing up just thinking of it. Oh, crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the word that would come to mind would be my, my friend's name, Tim. And uh, yeah, that, that word came about from, we were at the top of this mountain in St. Moritz and um, we were there for a world cup and, you know, it's beautiful there and it's always sunny and, but cold. And uh, we took like one of those 
it's a vernacular is that what it's called it goes yeah. to the top of the mountain so we head up there and there was like a bunch of these uh paragliders just like running and jumping off of the mountain and just cruising around up top and we're like holy shit like this is awesome like we, we need to be like this life that they're living that's what we need to be living <laughs> And we walked to the top of the mountain and we just stripped down and we just like got naked out in the snow and just like had this kind of moment where we like, it was like a reckless abandoned moment where we didn't care what, what anyone thought about what we were doing or why we were doing it. It's just, it's something that just felt like so real and, and raw and natural for us to do and connecting with the, with the earth in some way. And, and uh, we came up with this word parachute that like whenever we're, you know, feeling like life is is getting too much for us or overwhelming or whatever, we we say this word parachute and it, and it brings us back to that moment of just feeling, uh, I guess, like releasing ourselves to the world or, or um, I, I guess. Uh, like surrender? Yes, surrender. That's the one. That's the one Thank we got you. there. Uh, <laughs> I love that story and I loved hearing uh, it because I was like, that's kind of what I'm trying to find right now as I transition to find those people or those things that bring me that feeling of freedom. Or when I look at their lives, I'm like, I want that joy or I want to work that way or I want to think that way about my job or be that passionate about it. And then I go and interview those people and I'm like, what do you do? What do you think? And yeah. how do you get there? And then I write down what they say. I'm just trying to have meetings with as many people that I, that make me have that feeling, you know, when you stand there and you're like, that's what I want. So yes. I love that story. Cause I'm like, I need a word that's like snaps you out of it for a second. Like nothing else in the world matters. Just surrender, find freedom. And like, I feel like sometimes we try to be people who we aren't, or we feel like we have to fit into this box of like, this is the athlete. You have to sleep, you have to eat. And then you have to like, I don't know, always people are watching. And then for a second, you're like, no, I have freedom and I'm just going to be me. Yeah, right. That's I great. And, word. and that parachute. word will come to you. It'll at a, at a time that you probably least expect it. Right. But when it does, then write it, it down and, and yeah. And then have, have that in your back pocket. Cause I haven't actually, Tim and I, we, he lives in Ontario now. He retired from sport a few years back. And so, um, you know, we don't see each other very often, but occasionally I'll get a message from him that just says parachute. And it'll just remind me that like, Hey, we're here to be living our best life. And, you know, let's make sure we're doing that. Yeah. And that he's thinking of you. And I just want to say thank you for coming yeah. on and thank you for sharing every podcast I listen to with you in it or your Instagram. You're always very honest and open. And I think it makes people, at least for me, it makes people question how I'm doing or am I searching or something, but I feel it really refreshing because in a world that people really hide who they are and hide, you know, everyone seems okay. And like, they're living the best life. You just come across as like, yeah, life is great. I have a best life, but I also have days when I question things and I feel fear and I do it anyways, or I feel guilt. And I just really want to thank you for being real because it's, really rare and i really respect that and in, am inspired by that well i appreciate these kind words i guess <laughs> that i i don't even realize that i'm that way because like it, i guess it's just who I, yeah it's who i am and i, I think i i want to make sure that i'm portraying the, the the person you know whether it's on social media or something i try and portray the person that i am but it can be it can be difficult at times when we're living this or this label of being an athlete, you know, or being a, you know, a pilot, you know, when I'm, when I'm flying planes or something like that. And, you know, I try and give people the real version of me and if that can help them in, in some way, then I guess that brings me a lot of joy as well, knowing that, that I'm helping people to, to be their most authentic self. Yeah. Well, you're helping me. You helped us with our bus I'll, like obviously <laughs> to get some courage too but hopefully we can come and ski tour with you and bike and i really appreciate you jumping on that call and i'm so happy we sat you opened up that seat beside you on the bus and i got to know you better and i'm so excited to see what the future holds so thank you for chatting with us today and it's been um, i've learned so much and it's been such a pleasure 
Yeah, and if any of the skiers are uh, listening to this and they see me on the mountain, don't uh, don't give me too much of a hard time for my pizza and French fries, okay? <laughs> it's okay. I feel like skiers were just happy. Well, I'm just happy to be out there. So let's ski sometime. I see a snowboard yeah. in the background. You can snowboard too. I've heard it's amazing. So excited <laughs> for that next adventure with you. Awesome. Okay, let's do it up. Okay, thank you. Yeah, see Bye. you, Aaron. Thank you for listening to Unspoken Bravery. My goal with this podcast is to connect with you through real life experiences. So I would love to hear from you. A hello, feedback, future ideas, you name it. You can reach me on my Instagram account at Aaron Melzinski or head to my website, aaronmelzinski.com. If you like the podcast, please share, review and subscribe. I hope to see you back here to uncover your own hidden superhero.